So we're in session four of the series, Becoming Emotionally Healthy as a Christian. Now, we have looked at these things over the last lessons in this series. First of all, we've looked at the emotional aspects of the personalities. We've learned the 10 habits of emotionally unhealthy Christians. And last week, we looked at the tips and strategies that our therapist shared with us. Today, we're going to look at the importance of knowing ourselves better so that we can know Christ better and be in a better relationship with him. In AD 500, Augustine wrote in Confessions, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And then John Calvin in 1530 wrote, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Do you see the connection of both of those? How very important both of those are to becoming a better Christian. Knowing who we are and our emotional life is a part of that. And then knowing who God is. Well, almost all problems in our spiritual life will come from a lack of self-knowledge. A lack of self-knowledge and then knowing what to do about it. But Jesus Christ is always our model for everything. And Jesus knew himself. Jesus knew his purpose, just as we are to know our purpose. And he stayed faithful to it no matter what the world was saying to him. No matter how he was judged. No matter how people tried to hurt him. And how they tried to hurt his ministry. He stayed faithful to his purpose. And in living faithful to who he was and how God had placed him on earth to, to have a mission. And knowing that, Jesus had to do this. He had to disappoint people. He had to disappoint a lot of people because the world had expectations for him that he was never going to meet. He was able to stay true to himself, faithful to God and his calling, and and withstand enormous pressure. Let's look at how that worked in his life. He disappointed his family's expectations for his life. At one point, his mother and his siblings were wondering if he was out of his mind. He disappointed the people he grew up with in Nazareth. Jesus declared that he was the Messiah. And do you know they tried to push him off a cliff? He remained self-assured, though, in his beliefs regardless of all the outrage that was going on around him. He even disappointed his closest friends, his disciples. They projected onto Jesus their own image of the Messiah. And Judas, one of his closest friends, stabbed him in the back because Jesus was being true to himself. The crowds wanted an earthly Messiah who is going to fix them and feed them and overthrow the Roman oppressors and work miracles and give them inspiring sermons. And they wanted him to be a king, but he disappointed them. He had disappointed the religious leaders. As a result, they had to get rid of him. So because he was true to himself, <clears throat> because he knew himself, he disappointed people. And that's going to be the same for us we're not going to please everybody and make everybody happy when we know ourselves and we live according to the way God wants us to live. But we don't see Jesus falling victim to others' expectations for him. We don't see him going to this cave of despair or resort to shaming and blaming others. He doesn't become unhinged and, and call people names. He, he stays above the fray. Because he knew who he was in God. He stayed true to the plan that God had for his life. So he serves as our first biblical role model for knowing yourself. And then King David is another wonderful role model. David knew himself. Let's look just briefly at this, the famous story of David as he was a, a young teenager. And he was facing 
the giant Goliath. He was a part of the army of Israel, and he was they were facing the army of the Philistines. And for 40 days, that big, bad giant Goliath, who was nine feet tall and, and dressed in his pow powerful uniform with all of his weapons, comes out and he challenges the Israelite army. And he says, who is strong among, among you? Who will come face me? Who will be brave enough to fight me? But what we learn is they all stand in fear of him. There is no one willing to stand up and do the next right thing, stand up for who he is, stand up for the right convictions and beliefs. And then David comes along. He's come in from the fields. He's been out there taking care of the sheep, and all of his brothers are in, in the battle. He's not a trained soldier like the rest of them. He hasn't led, like Saul has done, armies to victory. He doesn't have on the armor. And he faces his older brothers who are calling him names and putting him down and telling him to get back into the fields. And Goliath is cursing him and daring him. But David knows who he is. He knows who the living God is, who is the God of heaven and earth. And with that conviction alone, David is able to break through the barriers, those barriers of his family's negative views, of the discouragement of Saul, of his fear of facing an enemy, his fear of stepping out and being different, his fear of the giant who is standing in front of him. But David knows who he is. He's firm in his convictions. He's differentiated his life because he is willing to do the hard thing in front of a lot of people. And so what he does is he takes that rock in his hand and he slings it toward that giant and that giant fell dead because David knew who he was and he knew his faith was in God and that God was going to help him face the very hard thing that others were not willing to face. And so this knowledge that he had of himself and his knowledge of God, both of those things together, came together to free him from the pressure outside. And that's what happens when we know who we are in Christ. We live accordingly and we worship the one true God and have a deep abiding faith in him then we can withstand the pressures all around us. So we're going to look today at three ways to know ourselves. Know ourselves so that we can know God better and so that we can serve him better and live for him. So these are the three areas we're going to look at. First of all, we're going to dig once again into knowing ourselves emotionally. And then we're going to look at our own level of self-differentiation, and then we're going to look at our level of discernment. How equipped are we to discern the will of God for our lives? So those are the three areas where we are going to go deep today. Well, this journey that we're in for transformation of our lives to become emotionally healthy Christians begins with a commitment to allow ourselves to feel. That's going to be very important to, to understand feelings and what our emotions are and what to do with them. Feelings are an important part. They're essential in humanity. And the reason they're important is because God gave them to us and God was an emotional being. So he made us in his image. That means that he gave us physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and social aspects. All of those are part of his image. And scripture reveals that God was an emotional being who feels. 
And let's look at what scripture tells us so that we can prove that point. You know, when he created the world, do you remember the words that he said that showed emotions? He said, that is what? It's good. He said, it's very good. So that's a remote, an emotional response to something that he did. And then we read on over in Genesis in chapter 6, verse 6, God was grieved that he had made humanity on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That was in the days of Noah. So do you see the emotions God is expressing? And then we read in Isaiah 42, God refers to himself as crying out, gasping and panting. And then we move over to Matthew chapter 26, verse 37. And we see that Jesus, as he is facing his own death on earth, we read, we observe Jesus sorrowful and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Look at the emotions that we see that Jesus had. And in that same period of time, we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, that at that same time, we see Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So notice in that one little episode of Jesus' life, he is feeling both grieved and filled with sorrow and full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Can we get to that point through our own grief and sorrow and anger and sadness and what other emotions that we, we might be experiencing to also see the joy through the Holy Spirit. That's our goal, is to be able to hold both emotions together so that we're taking those moments of desperation and turning them into moments of joy and peace only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, growing spiritually then includes experiencing these feelings and then doing this, reflecting on them, and then thoroughly responding to our feelings by letting the Holy Spirit work through us and guide us to the actions we need to be taking. So we, we want to acknowledge these feelings, these emotions, as part of the way that God communicates to us. And we then we reflect and we respond thoughtfully to those feelings that he gave us. And, but what happens, I find, in, in coaching and in teaching and just talking to individuals is that we either don't know or we don't understand our feelings and what to do about them. But God designed our bodies so that we can respond to people and to our circumstances in appropriate ways. And so he gave us these specific things to give us clues, indicators within our body about the emotions that we are beginning to feel. So he speaks to us through that knot in the stomach, through muscle tension, through even when you're trembling and shaking, those are signals. The release of adrenaline in your bloodstream, the headache that you have, and a suddenly elevated heart rate. See, our bodies often know our feelings before our minds. So we want to pay attention to the signals that our bodies are giving us. I refer quite a bit to Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a neuroscientist, and she has been doing brain research now for many years. Uh, she does gives very good sound research-based advice. She is a, a Christian, so I, I love that she is coming from that worldview that's a biblical worldview. And so she says that we have physical, emotional, and informational warning signals that occur in four types of these two words, discomfort zones. So we have information that comes to us in four ways in discomfort zones. 
So these are the messengers that God gives us. And so what we need to do is to recognize them and accept that it is discomfort that we're feeling for a reason. And then learn to manage our mind and emotions forward. Now, this is an important principle, so I'm going to, to repeat that. that we get message, message, messages in our body, and we want to recognize the discomfort they bring, and then do these two things, manage our, emotion, our minds and our emotions forward. Now, that means we're taking our ability to reason and our ability to feel and using them together to move forward as God would have us to do. So I want you, as, as I begin to go through these four types of discomfort zones, I want you to begin to think of an emotional situation in your life that you have experienced recently. And I want you to follow these warning signals that God had given you in that situation and see how they played out in your own life. So the first one is the just aware zone. This is when you're just becoming aware that something is off in your body. There's a physical sensation. There is a feeling or there is an piece of information, a thought that has come to you in some way. You may have overheard your name mentioned in a conversation. <laughs> And you just can't put your finger on what it is. And the second discomfort zone is the stress reaction zone. These are physical warning signals from our body that something in our life needs to be addressed. So this is where you begin to feel a little bit overwhelmed. You feel that things are out of balance a little bit. You may be feeling sickly. You may have that rush of adrenaline. You may get shaky. Do you see the next step is now this physical reaction? That's the stress reaction zone that comes from becoming aware of some piece of information. And then it moves into the third level, the emotional attitudes of the thought zone. And what that implies is recognizing the thoughts that tell you something is off about a situation. So now you're thinking about the thoughts that you're having about the way that you feel. You feel maybe a little wary about something. You feel that Maybe you are being pushed into a corner or, or you feel if somebody is trying to draw you out or somebody is trying to bait you for something or somebody is pressuring you to respond. And, and so you're thinking now about how your thoughts have changed because you have had an emotional reaction. And let's go back and put this together. You get a piece of information, whatever it is, words, body language, a phone call, an encounter. And then you have a stress reaction in your body, a visceral reaction to it. And then you begin to think about it. And that leads you, depending on what you're thinking, is to the number four in the discomfort zone is the about to choose zone. I love the way that Caroline Leaf worded that. It's the about to choose zone, isn't it? Because what does that imply? We get to choose. There's been something that's happened. You have a, a, a physical reaction. Your thoughts begin to spin. And now you're about to choose. You're holding multiple viewpoints in your mind. Something, somebody said something about you. Oh, Marcy, it could have been terrible, or maybe it was good. Oh, maybe I should confront them, or maybe I should pause. Uh, maybe I should dash out of the room. Maybe I should pray. You see, all of that is happening. 
And at this moment, you tell yourself in a healthy, emotional way, I need to press, pause, and think it through. And the healthy person, the emotionally healthy person, will decide not to react, but to respond and to perhaps wait to respond until you are in the comfort zone and feel peace. Now, I think that's just a beautiful way of stating what we're talking about in trying to understand our emotions. Now, what I find that often happens is that we have an unpleasant situation and an unpleasant circumstance, and then we have the next moment. And so I want to, to share a strategy that Dr. Carolyn Leaf teaches, and it's very similar to what I have taught for a long time about pressing pause and, and praying and then responding well. But she calls it the 30 to 90 second rule. So the moment that you have an encounter or an event or an upset is the critical moment. So when you experience something in a conversation or in a live moment that's happening, whether it's on the phone or in, in someone's presence, there is this initial biochemical and electrical surge in our bodies. It's a biochemical and electrical surge in our body in that moment. And that lasts for 30 to 90 seconds. And you know that I've taught many times about the gap. And it's the gap that God gave only one created being, and that's the human. And that gap is what she's talking about here. That moment that we get to make a choice and ponder and pray before we respond. No other created being has that opportunity. So if you take a nut from a squirrel, he's going to react immediately, isn't he? <laughs> um, any animal that God created is reactionary. But God created us with that gap. And she's saying that this is the 30 to 90 seconds. And so this is when our, our unconscious and our conscious, our conscious mind is adjusting. It's processing the incoming information. And that is the moment, that 30 to 90 seconds is the moment when we are most vulnerable. Because we're trying to get to the truth. We're trying to process uh, what we're going to say, what we're going to do. And that is when we tend to react impulsively. And what we do instead, we should do as an emo emotionally healthy Christian, is to slow down in the 30 to 90 seconds. So the 30 to 90 second rule entails following this sequence. First, breathe in deeply. Now this is, I teach it over and over. Sometimes I get bored with myself for teaching the same thing. We heard Sarah teach it last week. She gave you the roller coaster example or the car going uphill and down the hill and you breathe, uh, you breathe in, you hold it and you breathe out. Uh, another wonderful visual to use for the breathing. Um, and and I, I teach the, the three, four, five rule of breathing. You breathe in for three seconds, you hold it for four and you breathe out for five seconds. Uh, like you're uh, blowing through a straw. So first thing to do in this moment is to breathe in, expand the rib cage, and focus on a strong exhale. This is not just made up science. Um, made up science. It is actually based on research evidence that what this does, the breathing, it sends the signals to the brain because when we are in an encounter like this, our blood leaves the prefrontal cortex, our ability to reason, and it goes to the amygdala, our center of emotions. To reset it, we need to breathe deeply. So that's the science behind the breathing in that moment, the 30 to 90 seconds. And then you repeat it three to five times. 
And then if possible, and I love this one. I have never added this to what I, I share, but she does this, and I think it's wonderful. Create some mental space. This is when possible. By going into another room, going into a restroom, and yelling out loud, <laughs> if appropriate, or in your mind. Now, do you see what that does? See, that gets the, the blood flowing again. It releases you from all that adrenaline that is flowing in your body. And then lastly, do something physical like stretching or do your burpees. Okay, so either one, I vote stretch. Anybody else want to stretch it out instead of the burpees on the ground? So do you follow that 30 to 90 seconds? Wow, that's just, I mean, just a brief little time for us to reset. It helps us then in, to be emotionally sound in any scenario. When we know ourselves and our tendencies to react, there are strategies that we can use. So th this is the emotional aspect that I wanted to share with you today to get a handle on our emotions, to understand God created them, he has them, Jesus had them, and David had them. We all have emotions. All God's children have emotions. Understanding them, knowing the process of how they appear and how it looks in our body means that we become aware of them. We think about them, use them as signals. So first of all, we know our emotions and we then manage them forward. Well, there's another aspect of knowing ourselves, uh, and that is in discovering God's will. Ignatius, who was the founder of the Jesuits, wrote on the importance of maintaining a balance between our reason, which would be our intellect, and our feelings, which is connected to the heart. So he developed these very interesting guidelines that show the importance of placing emotions and what role they play in discerning God's will. Now, is that a new thought for anybody else in the room? Knowing your emotions in order to understand God's will for your life. So look at the continuum I've given you. There's reason on one hand and there's feelings on another. And if you will begin to imagine that scale as you are discerning God's will, it's going to be helpful for you. And here's, here's how we're going to look at that. He explored the difference between consolations. Now, consolations are those feelings we have, those movements we have within us that bring us joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit, all the beautiful, wonderful, good things that God wants us to enjoy. Those are consolations. And then desolations are those the things, those are the things that are within us that bring us turmoil, disquiet, and turbulence. So those are the, uh, those are the opposites. Consolations on one hand, desolations on the other. And so Ignatius focused on being aware of what we are feeling in order to discern God's will. Now, here's the interesting part. The key part is we have to know and understand our emotions and handle them and manage them well in order to discern God's will. So if you're living in chaos and confusion and not settled in your emotional life, it's going to be very hard to discern God's will. So you go back through all of those signals to see how to get your emotions stable and tap into your intellect so that the two of them will work together. Because I can't tell you the number of people that just want to handle emotions, the emotional life strictly in order to discern God's will. I don't feel like that's what he wants me to do. But we forget the intellectual part, our ability to reason and put that in there, discovering the facts about what we're considering. I've been talking to one of you uh, about uh, God's will for a, um, a financial investment that, uh, that concerns retirement. 
And so this uh, sweet sister is trying to figure it out. It's very emotionally upsetting. And here's what she's doing. She is going to different people to give her this intellectual information that she's missing because she doesn't have that information. Anybody else in that situation where you, there are all these numbers and finances and whatever and you don't get that, but you get the emotional upset. And until we get that piece that fits the reason and the ability to be logical and to count the cost and look at the numbers and then put it together, and when you put both of those together, then you can move forward in your decision for God's will. It takes both of those. And then you will take the desolation and turn it into consolation. The desolation of despair and confusion and chaos. And I don't know what to do. And I feel yucky about this. And nobody's explaining this. And you work through that and manage that. And you end up with consolation, which is the joy and the peace of Christ. So when we're trying to discern God's will, we want to look at our emotions and feelings and to see if those are taking us towards consolation. And if they are, that's taking us toward God. But if those emotions and feelings are not taking us toward God, they're taking us toward desolation. And the way we know is it's chaos, it's confusion, it's anger, it's bitterness, it's disappointment. And that's desolation. Now, this may be a very, very, very new concept, and so it's going to take some repeating and some studying and some going back and looking at all this, but I'm going to elaborate just a little bit more. So consolation means we're moving toward God because we're exhibiting the fruit of his spirit. And if we're experiencing, experiencing desolation, we're moving away from him. So what are the things that draw you toward God and bring his joy to your life? Begin to think about those. What are the things that, where you know you're exhibiting the consolation of Christ, you're volunteering in ministries, you you're love being a parent, and that brings you such joy. You, you have a, a wonderful spiritual life of reading and, and a time of meditation and prayer, and you're involved in a church, and, and you come to a Bible study, and you sit at a table and have fellowship with women, and you have your, your daily prayers, and you have a mid-morning prayer, and you close the evening with prayer, and you're, you're just wrapped in that. That's a consolation. You have other blessings in your life. You pray with a, a supported group of friends. I heard a wonderful story last week with the group after uh, who went to lunch last week, and they stayed after lunch. And Lynn Marcy doesn't mind me sharing it. She gave me permission, and she said, I've been dealing with this eye stuff for months, and it is bad, and my vision has not gotten any better. Although I've been to doctor after doctor after doctor, and I've spent this money and that money, and I'm not getting any peace from it, and I'm just really frustrated and torn. And, and that group of five women sat around that table, and our sweet Lori Snayman said, do you mind if we pray? I mean, right now, out loud to God. And they said, let's join and pray. And that group of women sat and they prayed. And they, they gave this over to God and asked for his peace and presence for Lynn. And you know, the next morning, Lynn woke up and her vision was better. See, that's consolation, isn't it? Yeah, I see, we're wanting to clap. Why are we afraid to clap and show that emotion? I mean, that, it, that's such a praise moment, isn't it? Why are we afraid to live in that consolation and say, let me pray, let me pray right now for you, and let me pray boldly for you? See, that's consolation. That's moving toward God. That's giving those emotions over. But we want to hold those emotions back. We're afraid to say, oh, thank you, Lord, or praise the Lord, or hallelujah. That's a consolation. We need to be moving toward that and away from that fear and that timidness when it comes to our faith. Counting our blessings is a wonderful way to live in consolation. But how are you living in desolation? Are you, are you living in grief and sadness and sorrow? Are you feeling abandoned and lonely and outcast and becoming bleak and cheerless and hopeless? Are you allowing circumstances to overwhelm you? You see, I'm being very intentional <clears throat> by saying living in, living in, and allowing 
circumstances to overtake you and overwhelm you. Because that's where we begin to drive emotionally downward. That begins an emotional spiral that will take us toward depression, and that's desolation. So if we're not looking for the signals, if we're not listening to our bodies, and if we're not asking questions about what we feel, and then taking the next about to choose step and doing it well, we may be beginning that emotional spiral down. Now here are some symptoms of desolation. It turns us inward. It drives us down the spiral ever deeper into our own negative feelings. It can cut us off from community. It makes us want to give up on things that used to be important to us. It takes over our whole consciousness and, and crowds out our distant vision. It covers up all of our landmarks, all the good, all the wonderful moments become overshadowed by the circumstances and it drains us of our energy. But here are the blessings of consolation. It directs our focus outside and beyond ourselves. It lifts our hearts so that we can see the joys and the sorrows of other people. It bonds us more closely to human community. It generates new inspiration and ideas. I love that prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers to pray to God. God, give me your creativity in solving this problem. One of my favorite things to pray. Give me your creativity to sort through this. It restores balance and refreshes our inner vision. It shows us where God is active in our lives and where he is leading us. And it releases us new energy. Now, here is what the truth of life is. We all live in the ebb and flow of desolation and consolation. Because we live in this broken world and, and we live uh, with emotional upsets and emotional disappointments and people making decisions for us and not choosing well and that affects us. So we're constantly going in and out of desolation and consolation. Our key is to find the moment of spiral and turn it upward. So what do we do? In desolation, here's what we do. We tell God how we feel and we ask him for his help. And then we seek out companionship. We seek out help. We go to someone who can help us and we don't go back on decisions we made in consolation. How many times have you said, oh, I'm going to pray every day and I am going to do my devotional and I'm going to find my spot and I'm going to begin the day well and end the day well only for three days in and you've gone back on your promise of consolation and the desolation then begins to appear stronger. We stand still and remember our inner map, those landmarks, who we are in Christ. And we recall a time of consolation and we go back to it. And we look for somebody else who needs our help. And we turn our attention toward them. And then we go back to one. We tell God how we feel and ask for help. And so what, what do we do when we're experiencing consolation moving toward God? We often think when we're moving toward God, that's enough. Now listen to this. We think it's enough just to have that. But here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to express our emotions in the good times too. So we want to tell God how we feel and thank him and praise him. We want to store this moment of consolation in our memory and return to that when things get tough by saying, oh, remember the last time I felt this way and what I did and how wonderful that was, I'm going to do it again. And we add this experience to the map. We use the energy we feel to further our deepest desires in Christ. And we let this surplus energy fuel the things that we don't like doing. 
and then we do them. And then we go back to one. We tell God how we feel and we thank him. Now that is desolation and consolation, an important aspect of our emotional life. So that when we want to discern God's will, we need to examine our emotions and our ability to reason and connect the two so that we can move forward with God's plan and his purpose in any moment of life. Well, our third area to become emotionally healthy and live our best life is through differentiation. I'm throwing out all these new words and so far nobody's left, so I'm going to keep going <laughs> with your permission. So Murray Bowen is the founder of the Modern Family Systems Theory. And he says that differentiation refers to a person's ability to define his or her own life's goals and values apart from, apart from, apart from the pressures of those around them. The key emphasis of differentiation is the ability to think clearly and carefully and not simply rely on emotions to make decisions. So this idea of differentiation means that we hold on to look at this, who we are and who we are not. And the degree to which you're able to hold on to your values and your goals in spite of the pressures around you reveals your level of differentiation. So highly differentiated people, that's what we want to be. So what do we want to be? Highly differentiated people. No, I want you to say it out loud. We want to be highly differentiated people. Because those are the people who have their own values, their own beliefs, their own convictions, their directions, and their goals that set them apart. And they're able to have those and not give in to the pressures all around them. They're able to think critically. They're able to make decisions based on their values, which as followers of Christ are biblically based, God-centered values and beliefs, and we can remain calm in the face of emotional stress. Now, does anybody else want that? That's why we want to be highly differentiated, because I know who I am in Christ I can stand up for my convictions. I can do the next right thing, even when you're coming at me with all of this emotional chaos and tempting me. I can stand in my convictions of a, of a highly differentiated person. But people who are not well differentiated tend to be highly reactive to the emotional cues of others. And they're often driven by chronic anxiety. They struggle to set appropriate boundaries in, in relationships, and they don't think for themselves. Now, Dr. Bowen created this scale of differentiation. I have that in your handout. So you can take a look at that. <clears throat> it's the last couple of pages of your handout. This is something that you can take home and work on and determine your level of differentiation. Now you'll see on the scale on the lower end, those are the numbers that are zero to 25. There is this little sense, not much sense, of their uniqueness in their God-given life. These people need continual affirmation and validation from others because they don't have a clear sense of who they are individually. 
that they need other people to tell them who they are and what to do and what to think and where to go and validate them consistently. Are you hearing any personality weaknesses in there? Is this is just filled with that. Insecure people need continual affirmation from others because they don't have self-awareness or self-confidence. They tend to uh, depend on what other people think and feel, and that's how they get their sense of worth and identity. And when in a stressful situation, <clears throat> they have little ability to distinguish between these two things, their feelings and their thought process. They're all just one and the same, driven by feelings. Let me give you some examples. So here's a situation, it's stress. Now, a poorly differentiated person, when stressed, tends to react impulsively and respond before thinking things through. But a highly self-differentiated person is, I take stress cues as signals to focus on a solution. And I may sense urgency, but I'm not overwhelmed. The issue of change. On one end, you may say this, others tell me change is really important, I need to be considering that, and that's gonna be a good thing, but I fear change, and I resist it, even if it's for my own betterment, as they tell me. And on the other opposite end of that, I see change as a way to improve and to make progress, and I'm open to it. And the idea of conflict. I choose either fight or avoidance. I fight when I can't control my emotions and I flee because I think my emotions will take over. Or I'm willing to disagree with another person and I'm willing to experience discomfort in order to achieve a positive outcome. And I really want to understand opposing views. Now those are, that's the scale and you, we fall anywhere in between. Most people, from what I've read, um, are not highly differentiated. Christ was the only fully 100% differentiated person because we tend to give in, we forget to consider what our morals, our values, what the Bible says about things. We wanna go with the flow. Think about what's happening in our country, in our culture, and in our denominations, in our relationships today. When low differentiated people give in to the whims of their emotions and to the pressures of the culture, they're allowing others to dictate their future. They're allowing others to dictate the future of the country, denominations, relationships. Are you following me with this? Well, we do not know who we are and we are not willing to stand as a highly differentiated person on our convictions and what the Bible tells us, what God tells us to do. If we're not centered on that, then other people will make choices for us. That's where we are. That's where we are in virtually every situation that is in conflict today, whether it's around the globe or in the home. We have opposing views and people who are emotionally drawn and, and, and standing on only emotions and are not highly differentiated will not make the stand. And here's what I hear. Oh, I'll just go with that group because that just seems to be the easiest thing and I don't want to hear any of this chaos and turmoil anymore. And I don't need to give my opinion because it doesn't really matter. Oh, I just won't vote. How about that one? That's a low differentiated person because they're not standing for their convictions. I am so pumped about this topic, and I hope you can tell it, because this is the direction our families are going, because somebody in the home is not standing as a highly differentiated person and doing the next right thing. In churches, it's happening too. I hear it over and over. I'll just go with that. I'll just be swayed by that side, because I don't know. I haven't studied. I don't understand. Let me, just, let me just go with what they say. That seems to be the right thing to do. It's in our country. It's the middle of low differentiated people that are gonna make your decisions for how we live. Does anybody understand what I'm saying right now? <clears throat> we all need to work toward knowing who we are, what our values are, 
understanding the difference between thoughts and feelings and listening to others and being respectful and hearing various viewpoints. And when this is done with a full commitment to Christ, we are both highly differentiated, emotionally strong, and spiritually mature. Now we've looked at the emotional aspect. We've, we've looked at the desolation and consolation and discerning God's will. And, and we've seen how we need to be able to separate our emotions from our reasons through self-differentiation. So what do we do with what we know? Number one, pay attention to your emotions. And the best way to do this is through silence and through meditation. Getting quiet with God and pondering feelings and asking questions. Consider our feelings when we encounter people and, and what are the signals and, and I'm getting amped up and here's what I need to do next. And then feel those emotions fully. Write about them. Ask questions about them. Discern if there's a pattern of emotions. Ask yourself if the feelings are based on truth. Ask if you felt pressure from others to feel a certain way. And then reflect with God. This is a process of self-reflection that is so important for us. It's a way to analyze our differentiation. It's the time to talk to God about our desolation and to talk to him with joy about our consolation. And then we want to get support from faith-filled people, whether it's, it's mature uh, Christians who are mature and, and beyond our understanding of spiritual things or, or mentors or counselors or Bible study members or church leaders and let that be a support team and ask that, that team to pay attention, help you to pay attention and to check in with the support team. Ask them in a way that is going to get you where you need to go and not just a venting process and then move forward with proactive intention, doing the hard work to address the emotional issues, really understanding your emotional life and doing the right things to get a handle on it, and stopping the spiral, and then show courage and determination as you move forward for self, through self-differentiation, because it's hard. Jesus had to do the hard thing. He had to disappoint a lot of people. He had to have courage. And when you begin to stand up for yourself and the right thing and for Christ, you're going to get pushback. And there are going to pe be people who don't like the change they see in you, but you stand as a highly differentiated person living in the consolation of Christ, emotionally strong, and that's what will please God, and you will get peace. I want to look at Elijah and how he was a highly self-differentiated person who was living in both desolation and consolation and emotionally strong, except he had this arc of emotions that led him from despair to delight. He stood up for God and God's values, and he uh, ran into a, a terrible encounter with uh, Jezebel just after he had had two victorious periods, one in war and one in, after he had prayed for rain and he got this rain through a drought and he was emotionally spent and all he wanted to do was to go to the sea and get some R&R &R &R and have those figs and grapes fed to him. Do you all know what I mean? After you've been spent, you just want some peace. And somebody tattled to, Je to Jezebel and said that Elijah had killed the prophets of Baal and Jezebel wasn't happy and she threatened to kill him. This was an emotional moment for him. And he had to make a decision. And do you know what he did? He fled. He ran away. He went into the wilderness and he, he found a solitary broom tree. And he prayed that he would just die. And in his solitude... He must have examined all the ugliness in his life, and he cried out to God, I've had enough. Take my life. You see the emotional spiral that he was in, and it sent him into a full depression. And here's what God, in his goodness, did. He allowed Elijah to have the rest that he needed. And Elijah lay down. He slept under that broom tree, and that's a little desert shrub, and Sometimes it's large enough to offer a shade for those in need. And isn't that what we all need? A little broom tree to find some solitude and quiet and a place to, to be with God. 
And there he went to sleep, and God spoke to him and told Elijah that he needed to eat something. And there beside his head, he discovered some baked bread and a jar of water. And even in that solitude, God was providing for Elijah. And then he let him sleep and rest some more. And then God's angel told Elijah, you need to eat again. And, and, and what, what he was saying is, you have a long journey ahead of you. And I want you to be ready for it. And Elijah obeyed. Notice in his solitude and his despair, he is in desolation and he's listening to God and, and he, he obeyed and he, he knew he needed to gain some strength because here's what happened next. He had to travel 40 days to Mount Sinai and he did. He traveled there and he had the strength to do it and then he needed some more solitude. So now he found a cave and he went into that cave and he slept the night away and the Lord spoke to him. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God knew that what Elijah was doing, but God wanted to hear from him. See, the important aspect is we need to talk to God and tell him what we're feeling in the cave. And he says, what are you doing here? He wanted Elijah to explain himself. He wants to hear from us in our brokenness, in our desolation. This is our time to emotionally cry out to God, and that's where we will get an emotional breakthrough. It's an emotional release, and Elijah broke down, and here's his heart. He said, I've served you, Lord, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, and they have killed all of your prophets. I'm all that's left, and now they want to kill me. Can you just insert your own moment of brokenness there and tell God what it is? It was in this time of solitude that Elijah contemplated what was not going well. God called Elijah to action in the middle of his solitude. Do you hear how he's discerning God's will? And he said, go stand on the mountain Elijah stood, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. The rocks were torn loose, and the Lord was not in that wind. And then there was this earthquake, but the Lord was not in that earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. It was the whisper that got Elijah's attention. The sound of silence is deafening, isn't it? Elijah was, reeling that, was realizing that God doesn't always have to reveal himself in such a big and powerful way. He could, but he chose to be in the whisper of solitude. God had found Elijah and Elijah responded. Elijah humbly wrapped his face in his cloak and went out to face the Lord. Has God ever gotten your attention <clears throat> when you became humble and looked at truth? That is when we have transformation. We need solitude in order to know God, to hear God, to get really close to God. Once again, God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I worked for you. They wanted to kill me, and now I'm here. And the Lord gave him detailed plans. See, that's the creativity of God. He'll reveal his plan. He said, go return. Anoint three people. God told Elijah that three men would be the ones who would ultimately destroy Baal worship. He revealed the whole plan to him. And Elijah had a personal victory of faith and discerned the will of God. It's our own broom tree that will bring us important lessons about life. It's in the broom tree where we can encounter God, 
It's the place where we're most vulnerable in our desolation. It's the place where we will surrender. It's the place where he will reveal the icebergs in our life. It's the place where then we can release our anxieties and turn to him for peace and joy. Do you need to step away from the noise so that you can hear God? Where is your broom tree? Because God wants to meet us there. Father, thank you so much for the lessons today. The lessons from Jesus, from David, from Elijah. Help us, Father, in our own moments of emotional upset, our own moments of desolation and, and our low dif differentiation to take it to you under our own broom tree. And in the silence, help us to turn it over to you so that we can live as highly differentiated, emotionally strong, spiritually growing followers of the faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray and we all say together, amen.